Um, we're not in a series. We're just f kind of free-floating, amorphous blob of direction. Um, I I'm kidding. We, we are not in a series. However, there is a certain amount of time before uh, the next initiative that is what we're doing as a church. Uh, Jason, you heard him mention that we are going to be going to Wright State uh, University to start something we call, or to restart something we call uh, Rock Campus Fellowship. And that is a, a missionary or, a, or a, a missionary activity or an evangelistic endeavor that we're doing as a church. And one of the things that's going to happen through that endeavor is that we are going to meet young men and women who are immature. Surprise. Now, I'm not saying that to be offensive. That's just every young man is, uh, is immature at some point in, in your life. Um, I, I'm going to do something not normal. I'm going to duck back here and grab my phone because I think this is honestly one of the funniest things I've ever heard a man of God say, <clears throat> I have a, a tweet here, got to keep up with the tweets. Uh, I'd put it on the board if I could, but this is Tim Keller. How many of you know Tim Keller? Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, Tim Keller is a great man of God who gives direction to the church at large, and you, you, could, you could consider him to be a, um, an apostolic figure. He, he has regional influence over many churches, and he's uh, a popular uh, in, in different Christian movements. And he tweeted this today, and I just thought this was so funny and so appropriate to what we're talking about. I thought I'd share it. He says, your future self will always see your present self as unwise and immature. That means you are currently a fool right now. <laughs> I loved it, and it was so appropriate, because we're going to talk today about maturity and what it means to be a disciple of the Lord. So you're, you know, you're a fool right now. So that uh, few, a few years from now, we'll, we'll burn this message. Um, so I, I want to talk today about discipleship, and I want to talk about the way in which we think, the, the ways that we think about discipleship. What, what we think about discipleship will inform how we approach uh, disciplers, that is, the people who are discipling us, and really it, it has to do with how you follow Jesus. Um, following Jesus is not this mystical thing that we do on our own. Um, it's not just kind of you free float through your Bible and flip it open to any page, and then whatever you read that day, God wants you to focus on that. That's not at all what we mean when we say following Jesus. Um, so, uh, a Christian is not identified merely by their political affiliations, necessarily where they go to church, where they shop, the food that they eat, or the clothes that they wear. You can't tell if someone is a Christian by those external things. You can't tell a person's a Christian uh, if they've decorated their house with everything that you can find in the back of a family Christian bookstore. You know, the candle holders that are made out of love, you know, the word love, and, you know, on the wall there's decals of, like, peace and faith, and that does not make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, Christians are identified, rather, by a lifestyle, a lifestyle, a way of life, of activities that are service, mercy, and love. 
That is how a Christian is identified. Jesus said, the world will know uh, that I'm in you, that, that I'm the, the Christ, I'm son of God, by your love for one another. And so he doesn't say they're going to know you by your like fish decal on the back of your car, by the way that you re, re, you know vote with the moral majority. That's not at all how Jesus says uh, you're going to be identified. So this lifestyle, it's exhibited by serving, giving, praying, counseling, and, and befriending. That is the act of making a friend, going and reaching someone. Admittedly, when we come to Christ, when we uh, go and, and share the gospel with others, and when we ourselves came to Christ, those elements of our life were not there. They were missing. And we'd all freely admit that, or at least I'd hope you'd admit that. You weren't, when you came to Christ, a perfect, mature believer who loves and gives and serves and is extravagantly generous with your finances and with your time and with your resources. And so, as we, uh, as we grow in Christ, the question becomes, how are we to put these things into our life? How are, how are we to set up a lifestyle of, of giving, service, love, etc.? And really, the, the answer is in the question. We ask questions like, how am I going to get my life on track? Or how am I going to read the Bible more? Or how will I have daily devotions be a part of my life in a stronger way? And so, indeed, it's, the focus becomes on what we will do for ourselves, the study Bibles that we'll buy or the self-help books that we'll read, Christian or non-Christian, the shows like, you know, maybe Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz that we'll watch or whatever we're attempting to do to kind of put our life together. It, you know, that becomes a focus or it can become a focus for us. And so rather than focusing on self, I believe that as we follow Christ, our lives must look more and more like his, not ours. That is, we subject our will to the will of the Father as evidenced by Scripture and revealed by Jesus' walk on the earth and the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. The, the Old and the New Testament together make a corpus of teaching by which we measure our lives. And so, that being said, we come into that maturity not on our own, but by connecting with spiritual fathers and mothers who direct and give shape to our life. That's what we're talking about today. So we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at what it means to follow Christ. We're going to look at imitating others. Um, many in our generation have this, uh, we, we have this sense of authenticity that, uh, you know, if I don't feel authentic, if I don't feel, you know, genuinely ready to lift my hands or clap or shout, then I can't do it because I'll be a hypocrite. Well, the Bible doesn't exactly operate that way. And so imitating others is something we need to do. We're going to look at what it means to be a spiritual ch uh, child. And then finally, I'm going to give us my opinion of what some signs of health uh, are for a Christian who is growing into maturity. So with that, Christ comes into the world. Uh, it's funny, my, my father actually was talking about this earlier. Christ comes into the world and he seeks out disciples, and he says to these disciples, come, follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. And the implication there is that Jesus, in that moment, is fishing for men. He is looking for disciples, and he's actually looking in a beautiful pun uh, or a play on words. He's actually looking right there for fishermen, 
and these fishermen are going to be transformed. They're leaving their vocation, they're leaving their way of life. In fact, they're even leaving their culture, and they're going to travel with him to different regions in Israel. And as they walk with Christ, they will, of necessity, become more and more like him. And so the implication is that when you begin following Christ, it is not a mere prayer that you say uh, at an altar call, Jesus, come into my life, I'm a wretched sinner, I need you. That's a good prayer. But at the end of that prayer, or in that prayer, in the midst of your confession of faith, you should also be declaring, I give you my life. I am no longer my own Lord, I submit to your will, I renounce my idolatry of self. And so, as American Christians, this becomes our greatest difficulty. We live in an age of consumerism and material worship such that we, you know, it's in the very ether, it's in the air we breathe. Uh, If you've ever, if you've never seen this, just here's an assignment. This week, I want you, every commercial that you watch or see on a billboard or a sign, every commercial, I want you to ask yourself the question, what is the belief system behind that commercial? For one of the easiest examples right now is Coke. You know, Coke used to be this like classic always kind of like red shiny button. Well, now they're going for this like modern theme. It's it's very uh, minimalist. But their tagline in their campaign for the last few years has been open a bottle of happiness. I mean, you you have to understand, they're trying to sell you on the idea that when you take this Coke, this, uh, not cocaine, that's probably, that's probably also sold on the route of happiness, but when you open this bottle of Coca-Cola, you're going to find what you're looking for. This is a drink that quenches not only your thirst, but your emotional needs. You're going to find happiness. That's the spirit behind Coca-Cola. And so... In this day, as, as Christians who live in America, we're called out of the world by Christ, and we must uh, conform to his image rather than the culture around us. Uh, it's just in, it's in absolutely every commercial you'll see this week. Um, and, and you need to be on guard against the spirit of the age. And so following Christ is, uh, is a necessary thing for us to do. It's not mere salvation. It's not... A ticket to heaven. Jesus instructs his disciples in this way. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So you never exalt over Christ. You don't put your will above Christ's. Your ideas are not better than Jesus's ideas for your life. And he says in verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. He says, the goal of your discipleship The goal of this process that you're going through is so that you would be like the teacher. And how is Jesus like? He's a fisher of men. He he comes into the world to seek and save those who are lost. He comes as a physician, not for the health, but for the sick. And he comes in such a way as to create a community of people. And so this is what he's telling his disciples. It's enough, you, you know, don't go beyond this, but it's enough that you would become like me. So following Christ is not simply admiring Christ. It's not just knowing Jesus' name. It's not, it's not liking Jesus, even. And you can actually like Jesus and be totally impressed with all the miracles that he's done and yet not be following him. In fact, many in his own day, that was the situation that they were in. They admired his work. 
Some said he was the Christ, but they didn't join him because of the fear of being put out by the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so, you know, you can, you can be in a place, even attending church for years, where you don't actually follow Christ, you just kind of admire him. And you, you like him, but you're not willing to submit to his leadership for your life. And so to follow Christ is not to admire him, but it's to take on his burdens. He says, my, my yoke, my burden is easy and it's light. It's to remove uh, yourself out from under the burden of self-idolatry, the American dream, your goals and plans, and to place yourself under the submission of Christ. That is, you... Uh, are, are singing with joy that song, all of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. That's the goal for a Christian, and every Christian is called to be a disciple. In fact, Jesus makes it plain, if you are not a disciple, you are not truly a believer. You're not truly a Christian. He calls us out of the world to be with him, to become like him. And so, the question then becomes, okay, so we, we need to move from just being admirers of Christ and superficial things. We need to, to get to the source. We need to follow Christ. That sounds right now like a very um, mystical thing, a very uh, weird thing. How am I going to follow Jesus, right? We talk about following people on Twitter. The, the tweet earlier from Tim Keller, I follow Tim Keller on Twitter, but I don't follow Tim Keller on Twitter like I'm supposed to follow Jesus. Uh, by following Tim Keller on Twitter, I give him a little bit of voice into my life. I read what he has to say. But, you know, Jesus, when he says, follow me, he doesn't mean just kind of check out my word every once in a while, or, you know, get like a Twitter account that like automatically tweets the Bible at you. That's not following Jesus. It's not following Jesus in the way that he calls you to follow him. So the question is, how do we follow Jesus? What does being a disciple of Christ look like now that Christ is ascended into heaven? Does he literally want us to grab tunics and sandals and fly over to Israel and walk around and like visit all the places he visited? No, obviously not. I mean, that, that just is ridiculous. Uh, we know that's not the truth. So the question is then, okay, maybe it's just, you know, following Jesus in our Bibles. Well, no, that's not the answer either. He doesn't say to you, follow me and grab your uh, study Bible of your preference and look in the study Bible for whatever you may think it says about me. That's not what Jesus says. The, Jesus and the apostles, in their instruction to the church, their gospel that they bring to the nation of Israel, the surrounding nations in the Roman culture that day, they did not address every social concern. And likewise, I began this message talking about a problem that we face as individuals. You and I are not mature. We learned from Keller we're presently fools. And, and we face this issue, and, and the society at large faces this issue. And so for the church of the first century, the slavery of man, that is the fact that people were enslaved, there were, there were subjects and masters, the slavery of man to sin for the, for the apostles and for Christ is a far more important issue than the slavery of man to his fellow man. Because Christ, the apostles, understand that the gospel, Jesus says in a parable, is like a mustard seed, and it's the smallest of the seed, but when it has grown and expanded and grown to maturity, it becomes a tree, and the birds of the air, which speaks about the nations, that's a prophetic 
symbol of nations, the birds of the air come and find rest in that tree. Jesus is saying this gospel is going to spread throughout the world, and in so doing, it's going to demolish all types of slavery. Not just slavery of a man to his fellow man, but also slavery that fills the heart. Uh, Unfortunately, it took many uh, generations in our own country to see that take place, and in many ways, we still have other types of slavery. We may have, have gotten rid of the slavery of, of the African Americans who were in this country, but there's still slavery all around the world of, of women and children in sexual uh, slavery. That is, you know, either a system of prostitution or what is called human trafficking. But there's also in our culture a slavery to material goods and a slavery to those things that do not actually matter at the end of our life. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth, but rather give generously, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust, that is the destructive forces of nature, cannot touch them. And so, you know, there's still work to be done with the gospel. But a slavery that we have today is the slavery and addiction of people to their own wills. And that is the same problem that they had in the first century church. And that slavery to our own will leads man and woman into terrible things that break apart families that uh, results in the types of issues we were talking about. Our generation, just like the first century, has some deep societal problems. It's not slavery necessarily in, in the sense that it was a few generations ago, but it's now a slavery of our own will over and against the commitments and covenants that we've made. And that results in fatherlessness, divorce, sexual abuse, and broken homes. And because of these things, because men are submitted to their own will and not to the will of Christ, they put things before their covenants, such as other women, uh, their jobs, uh, substance abuse, whatever they're trying to use to fulfill their, maybe it's Coca-Cola, to whatever they're trying to fulfill that internal lack of fulfillment. Uh, and, and they exalt these things over and against the covenants they've made, and they break their families in half, and they, they send children away to live with one parent or the other, or the parents split and then the kids, you know, go somewhere else. You know, it's just, it's a rampant social problem in our day. Now, knowing that Christ and the apostles have a pattern of freeing the man to fix the problem, we too shouldn't just uh, go around and set up like tent meetings of like, you know, family reconciliation, or we shouldn't put on crusades for, you know, mere like restoration or reconciliation type of meetings. That won't solve the the root of the problem. Like Paul uh we need to address the spiritual condition. And in this chapter, our reading for today, Paul addresses this. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.15, now I'm not saying necessarily there was a lot of divorce in Corinth. I'm saying that the spiritual condition is exactly analogous to today. He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he means by countless guides in Christ is there's tons of people with opinions as to who this Jesus was and how you should follow him and what you should do with your life. And, you know, it it is exactly analogous to today. We have uh, every type of 
translation in the English language. Also, you've got that translation, and then you've got its corollary study Bible. And then you've got like the corollary study Bible with like extra historical notes or, or something like that. We have more self-help books in Christian bookstores today than at any other time in the history of the church. And we have more guides than any time before. Yet the saying is still true, we lack fathers in our life. Paul goes on to say, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is in this chapter defending his ministry along with his team's uh, reputation because the people at Corinth had begun to uh, revile against Paul. They were throwing off restraint. As it says in, in Psalms 2, the nations want to cast off restraint of Christ and his authority. And so this is happening at Corinth. There are some people in their church in, the, in that city, and they are attempting to throw off the authority that the apostles had come and, and brought them up in. And, and Paul is saying, what are you talking about? No one else has this relationship with you. I'm your spiritual father. I was the one who gave birth to you by giving you the gospel and bringing you up and nurturing you in the faith. I planted this church, and in some very real way, although it, it is Christ's church, it belongs to me. I have authority here. I'm supposed to speak into your life. And so the, the chapter ends with Paul saying, what, what do you want? Do you want me to come with a rod, or do you want me to come in a spirit of meekness and gentleness in love? Now, the, the point being here is that our situation as men in the church, young men, young women in the church, is exactly this. We have so many guides, so many opinions, so many people to follow on Twitter or to read their study Bibles or, or listen to their sermons, yet we don't have many fathers. There isn't a relationship there that actually has substance. And so following the pattern of the apostles, we shouldn't go around and, and start parachurch ministries of like, you know, the crusade to end fatherlessness or something like that. That won't fix the problem. Although it might be good and it might sound like a good idea, instead we should become the answer ourselves. That is always the goal of, of the apostles' teaching. It is to become uh, the answer ourselves. Like Christ, although he was the, in, uh, the divine word, we ourselves need for the word to take, fl take flesh in our life. We need to take God's precepts, his law, his word, and embody them in the way that we live and demonstrate that to the world. So to be the answer, therefore, it requires us first to submit our lives to spiritual fathers and mothers and allow them to speak into our lives. It is not enough that you know the problem or the solution. It, that solution of this issue of fatherlessness only comes about by submitting to fathers. Uh, I'm, you know, it's, it's just the way that God has set up even reality think about this. You cannot be a father or a mother unless you were a son or a daughter. It's just impossible because without you being a son or a daughter, you wouldn't really exist. So when you're born, you were someone's son, you were someone's daughter. And, and this is the case that, that God has set it up this way. His desire is for children to be raised into maturity by fathers and mothers. And in the church, those are spiritual fathers and mothers, which means by, by saying spiritual, it is people who speak into your life who do not have necessarily biological ties to you, but they have authority 
over you and for you uh, in the church. Now, because we've grown up with these wounds in our life of, of fatherlessness or, or broken homes, this is a scary thing for, for you and I, and it's also a scary thing for the people that we're going to be sharing the gospel to and eventually discipling. And Therefore, uh, we need to be the answer ourselves. We need to create in our own life, by the grace of God, a submission to fathers and mothers that doesn't... Uh, that, that actually has some substance, and we'll be talking in a minute about what I mean by that. But it means giving permission to those who would dis- disciple us to both care for us and to love us. Now, that may sound weird, right? You know, we talk about love as this thing that is done by the lover in our culture. We talk about, you know, I couldn't help myself. I just, you know, at the sight of this person, I just fell in love. Well, that frankly is... Uh, to use an okay word, it's just junk. I mean, that's, I, I do not, I, I pray that you are not in a relationship that, that started out with, well, uh, love at first sight. Now, maybe, you know, God was involved and he, but that's not how relationship takes place. Relationship takes place over time and there's trust. And so when I say give permission to those who would disciple us to love us, I mean sticking around in such a way and opening up our life to become vulnerable to allow someone to love us. And that love takes place over time, and it takes place over years, and there's trust in those types of relationships. You don't just go around and declare to strangers on the street, I love you. You say, hello. What's your name? You know, you, you, there, there's a relationship that needs to exist for you to open up that channel to allow someone to love you. And it's only in allowing someone to love you that you will grow up and become mature. In part of that, uh, part of that loving is also the same thing as discipling uh, and disciplining. There's a reason that disciple and discipline are so similar in the way that they're spelled and the words that they actually are, because they're one and the same. Uh, discipling is the process of mid-course corrections and, and re, you know, removing some and adding some and, and directing. And, and this often takes the, play, it takes the form of uh, what some people call harsh words or uh, admonishments or rebukes. And the, the love and, and discipline thing is really two sides of the same coin. You cannot have authentic love Without, uh, without trust and without the ability to, to tell someone they're wrong or to ask for forgiveness from someone. That's relationship, and relationship is the channel through which love is communicated. So, that being said, Paul knows this. He is a spiritual father, and in, in our chapter today in 1 Corinthians 4, he is trying to address this situation in Corinth. For Paul, following Christ, it takes place in the context of the church— and in that church, we grow and mature. Paul is not writing a letter to the individuals at Corinth. If you look at the beginning of the book, it says to the church at Corinth. He's not writing a letter to, uh, you know, to then be dissected and then be put in various self-help books about how to, you know, get your life on track. You know, Paul isn't intending to write a book that we, um, we skip the first 12 chapters, and then we really know the 13th, 
and then the rest of it we don't even read either. That's not why Paul is writing the, the letter. It, the context of Paul addressing this problem of spiritual fatherlessness is in the context of a church. That is the setting for getting these issues resolved. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17, I urge you then, as a result of then being a word that says, as a result of all that we've just addressed, uh, the, the fact that they have come into a place where they feel sufficient and rich and mature and kings, when really they're a group of Christians who have deep spiritual problems, he says, because, you know, I've just illustrated your actual immaturity to you, because of that, be an imitator of me. That is why I sent you Timothy. So why did he send Timothy? He sent Timothy so that they could be imitators of Paul. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Notice the relational dimensions that are explicit in, this, in these two sentences. First is Paul's ways are in Christ. He asserts that not just of his own testimony, but also because he sent Timothy to be an example. Timothy will also uh, bear witness that Paul's ways are in Christ. And Timothy himself is a faithful child in the Lord. Paul doesn't say that he's just, you know, a good brother. Paul describes Timothy as his child. But we all know from the writings of the New Testament that Timothy, his natural earthly father, was not Paul. It was some other guy. It it wasn't uh, it wasn't clear uh, who necessarily Timothy's father was, but we know that Timothy grew up with a Christian grandmother and a Christian mother, um, and and the the case being that that Timothy was a young man who lacked spiritual fatherhood in his life. So when we talk about spiritual fathers and mothers, it's not enough, ladies. Uh, as much as you may like this idea to just have a spiritual mama and uh, just go to her all the time. Um, Paul, Timothy had that. He had his mother uh, who was a faithful woman. And Paul identified the problem in Timothy's life. You need spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. And that's why Paul takes Timothy on. Also because of the call of God on Timothy's life, which uh, hopefully we can look at in the next few weeks. But Timothy is a demonstration to the Corinthians. He's a demonstration of how to live. He's a living testimony, a living epistle, as Paul says later, that that Timothy is going to live amongst the Corinthians and demonstrate and exhibit a way of life that is that is commensurate with the gospel. And then Finally, the Corinthians should imitate Timothy's lifestyle. Again, Paul is answering this spiritual fatherhood issue in relational ways. Okay, this prescription that Paul writes is that you should you should submit yourselves to a lifestyle. You should imitate Paul. And so, you know, it's this it's not this non-authentic, you know, whatever I feel like, however I want to worship, however I want to study my Bible. It's imitate the people who got you started in the faith. And so these Corinthians, a group of people, are being sent by Paul, not only a letter, but a living letter, a living epistle, Timothy, to walk in, in their midst and to demonstrate how to live a life. And Timothy will bring correction and he'll bring direction and, and other things that are needed in Corinth. So all of that being said, let's say you're convinced 
that uh, that you know spiritual fatherhood is is a thing that you need to be seeking, um, or discipling is is or discipleship rather is something that you need to enter into. You, you let's say that in the last thirty minutes or so, I've successfully convinced you that uh, you need to move beyond just admiring Christ and actually following Christ. Um, maybe I haven't convinced you, but if I haven't convinced you, um, then I want you to examine your own life. Now, Paul in this chapter actually says, I don't judge myself. But he's not saying you can't judge yourself. Uh, later, he says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And so this idea that... Um, that we're going to examine some dimensions of our life. What I'm what I'm asserting is that the the things that we're about to talk about are the the pattern of life for biblical Christianity in American culture today. That is, what are the necessary things, just at a foundational level, that that are required to be in place for you to be a person who's growing into maturity. Now, before we get started uh, looking at these four things, I I don't want you to hear this as well, if I'm not meeting the bar, I'm not a real Christian. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Paul is addressing a problem at Corinth, and he's addressing it to have it resolved. The grace of God is never a, a thing that comes by and just you know kind of accuses you and then leaves you in a broken state. The grace of God, the, the word of God, it comes to you to cut to the quick, that is, cut to the heart, and to resolve and administer healing to that issue of your life. It's like a master surgeon who goes in after gangrene. They, he knows just where and how to cut. It is, it is necessary that these things be removed out of your life. It's not, it's not okay for you to know that you have spiritual fatherhood issues or relational maturity issues. It's not okay to identify those and then not do anything about it. And so that being said, uh, I don't wish to lay burdens on you, but I want to I want to explain these things of what I feel are signs of maturity in such a way that you would have a vision for the possibility of a normal Christian walk. Amen? That's that's what I want. I want a mature Christian walk. I don't want to play games any longer. Uh, I'm, I'm 25 years old. I'm a quarter of a century old. And uh, some people talk about a quarter-life crisis. I want, I'm, I'm trying to wake us up as young men, young women, to the very real possibility that your life is moving forward, and you need to move forward. And you need to move forward in following Christ, not just some direction that you want to live. So I think these are some ways that you can test your walk to see if you're actually beginning to grow up or if you're trying to be like Peter Pan. You remember Peter Pan? You guys ever see that movie? Peter Pan, he lived on the island of the boys who never wanted to grow up. That's, that's what we've got. We've got uh, Mark Driscoll calls, calls uh, young men who don't take responsibility for life. He says, boys who can shave. And that's what I desire to get rid of. I want to make young men and young women out of all of us, including myself. So, I believe that believers growing in maturity, not already mature believers, believers who are growing into maturity regularly seek pastoral care and input. And this basically looks like like pastors aren't chasing you down all the time to find out what's wrong in your life. And you're not hiding problems until it's too late to do something about it. And you're not 
scapegoating, you're not blame shifting, but rather you are opening up your life to pastoral input. That is a basic sign of growing in maturity, is you're realizing I'm not wise, I need wise people to speak into my life. And in so doing, you seek godly counsel and wisdom, and you don't bolt at the first sign of conflict. It's very easy to get a relationship started, an extreme, you know, a discipleship, a discipler, disciplee relationship started, but then after like two or three weeks, when the first problem is addressed, you're just like, well, uh, this is rejection, I'm out of here, this is just like my dad, just like my grandpa, just like whoever. You know, that, that can be your, your exit out of maturity. You can leave a path of maturity and go off and be diverted by bolting at the first sign of conflict. So not only is there pastoral care and input, another dimension is that believers who are growing in maturity worship and serve in a local church. Why do you serve? You serve because you are learning that it is better to give than receive, and it's not just you trying to humble yourself, it's just that preferring others is better. You value gathering with the people of God to sing, to hear, to sing worship songs, to to sing to the Lord, to hear the word of God, and to eat. And this isn't just talking about uh, fellowship outside the church or getting together with someone's house. You're here to eat communion and to partake of Christ with one another. As a believer who's growing in maturity, you see the importance of the church as God's agent on the earth and therefore faithfully tithe uh, because it is the financial lifeblood of the local church. If you have never considered how your financial giving to this church or to another church or to any church that you go to, if you've never considered what your tithing is, it's very simple. Without tithes, there cannot be pastors who go to seminary for years and years and years and spend money that they don't have without the ability to pay back their debts or, prefer in my, in my life, preferably pay it before you start. Uh, that is the, the way that churches are financed whether it's a small non-denominational church like this or a large denominational church with many churches in many states and countries, the way that churches are run are through money. And if you don't give, you are not placing value on your local church. And believe me, um, we're not prosperity gospel preachers, and I myself um, am not getting paid by this church. This church needs funds, not so that I can get a salary. I've got one. It's, I, I like my job. It's a nice job. And I would do this whether you paid me or not. But the fact remains that we have a building, and this building takes money. And so part of growing up into maturity is taking responsibility. It's not just kind of attending meetings, whether it's here or there or wherever. It's taking responsibility for the things that you're uh, consuming. That is, you, you come to a church, you go to a church, and that church has financial needs. And you seek to meet those, uh, although it's a small fraction, you seek to meet those needs and to provide for the things uh, that are spent on, on your spiritual health. And Paul says over and over again that a person who, who his life is the ministry, that is, a person who lives by the gospel, has a right to receive his life funding through the gospel. And so, because of the rampant errors of the prosperity gospel preachers in today, we intentionally 
uh, at this church don't have our ministers be paid uh, exorbitant salaries. And in fact, almost everybody isn't paid at all. So believe me, it, I'm not saying give money because I want a Rolex or uh, you know, a Lexus. I, I don't even like watches. But you, that is a sign of growing into maturity. You give, you serve, you worship in a local church. Not multiple, not whatever church you want to go to. You, you pick a church and you stay there and you establish relationship there. And then a, a believer who is growing in maturity resolves conflict in the church by going to and forgiving and being forgiven, not by spreading gossip, not by telling your problem to the pastor instead of going to the brother or sister who offended you. Believers growing in maturity love God apart from local church meetings. That is, you're not just here on Sundays. You don't turn the Jesus dial to 11 Sunday morning before you get in the, in the door, and then right when you're out the door, you don't hit mute. That is not what, uh, that's not what a believer who grows in maturity lives like. Believers who are growing in maturity have their heart warmed when they're reading the Word of God, and they're regularly learning from the Scriptures the things that pertain to godly living. You're not getting your opinions of society from society. You're not getting your opinions of how you should do family from the world. You're not uh, learning your uh, habits of how to live, how to eat from the world. You're not putting off uh, things like you know, growing up or reading books or stewarding your finances or, or moving forward with a family if that's God's call for your life. You're, you're not doing that. Uh, because it's cool to you know have two incomes and no kids, uh, you're you're doing that. You you know you're you're seeking after God's wisdom for your life as to how to establish uh, a godly living, whether it's kids, whether it's it's singleness, whatever state you may be in. And then finally, when praying, the peace and the love of the Holy Spirit is present. It's not just that you pray or read the Bible out of necessity or check off your little box on the weekly Bible reading. I'm, I'm for weekly Bible readings. I'm just against uh, just completion for completion's sake. When you encounter God, you really encounter Him. And then finally, the last element we, we've talked about, just to recap, we've talked about pastoral care and input into your life, maturity through worship, and serving in a local church, loving God apart from church meetings, and then finally, you're beginning to share your faith with others. Your heart is regularly moved with compassion at the sign of the lost and the hurting and the sick. That's how you know you're becoming more conformed to the image of Christ, because Christ, it says, when Christ saw the multitudes, he had compassion upon them, or compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When you encounter other believers who are just wayward in their walk, or they're not attending a church, or they have no shepherds in in their life, you have compassion for them. You want them to, to come and get help and get healed. As a sign of growing into maturity, you're never content with your level of boldness, spiritual power, or effectiveness in ministry. You're always, after the encounter, after sharing your faith, after trying to help someone, you're, you always walk away, Lord, how could I have done that better? How could I have, uh, what, what are the verses? Where's the part of scripture that would have helped the, that person's problem? Why wasn't I effective? Why didn't my prayers 
you know, affect a change? Uh, those are the kind of questions you have. And then finally, the last and and most sure sign that you're a believer who is growing into maturity is that you're being trained to disciple others. That's Paul's implication and Jesus's implication. Follow me and you'll be a fisher of men. Follow me and you'll call other people to follow you. Paul says to the Corinthians, follow me, be an imitator of me, and watch Timothy's life, and he's going to come and live his life among you. And the necessary implication is, after Timothy comes and helps Corinth, Corinth is going to send out missionaries as well. And and they're going to be spiritual men and women who, who affect change throughout the earth. So that is... Uh, what I think are those four elements of, of maturity that, that should be taking place in our life. Now, whether you find yourself in those areas thriving or sinking, it doesn't really matter which side of the, uh, the table you're on here, whether, you're, whether you think in your own estimation that, that you're doing just a bang-up job in every area, or whether you think you're, I mean, this is just like a death sentence. You're just totally missing it. Wherever you're at on those issues of what I think is Christian maturity for young men, young women, wherever you're at, Christ calls you to follow him by following in the midst of his people. And to those who want to follow him and follow his people, he calls you as a child of God to come and to eat with him. So with that, we're going to pray and then uh, take communion. Father, we thank you that you do not want to leave us as orphans. God, we pray that you would break off any orphan spirit that is on our lives here as a church, that you would just remove from us feelings of fatherlessness and, and lack of direction, and that you would give to us the grace to seek out spiritual fathers and mothers, that you would give to us God, the grace to work through the pain of failed relationships in the past, and that you would give us an understanding of all that you accomplished on the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you not only made an atonement before the Father, but you also broke down the dividing walls that keep us from loving our fellow men. Lord, we ask that we would be those who would that we would be those who would exhibit the traits that you spoke of when you were asked, who are my uh, mother, that when you asked, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters, those who do the will of God, those who hear the word of God and do it. We want to be those, Lord, who would not just call ourselves Christians, but we would be identified as Christians, that the world would know that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God, because we live before others in a way that exhibits love and grace. And they know, they can see it, that that love, that grace, that it didn't come from us, but rather is from relational community to your church and to you. God, we ask that you would heal the, in many, in many cases, generational problems that exist in our families, and that you would bring us young men and young women into maturity. Jesus, we thank you for the free offer of grace that you give to us, and we ask, Lord, that you would, you would cause us 
to enter into disciples, discipling, that you would cause us to enter into those things that will fix the problems that we don't see. Lord, I ask that you would give us an ability to hear your voice and not harden our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.